We exist to see God glorified and churches multiplied by declaring and displaying the gospel. Hey, I got a couple announcements for you today, and then I want to recognize someone as well, and then we'll um, bring Tyler to preach. Uh, we have membership weekend that's coming up on uh, March 5th, which is actually this coming Saturday. And so if you're new here, if you've been kind of exploring Emmaus, you're interested in, in who Emmaus is and, and what Emmaus does and what it looks like to be a member here, we'd love to have you join us 8 until noon on Saturday morning here at Emmaus upstairs in our loft. Uh, I'll be there leading that time. We'd love to just walk through that with you, get to meet you that way. Uh, you can stop by the connect table to sign up for that or go to emmauskc.com forward slash connect as well. We'd love to have you join us for that. Uh, ladies, if you've not signed up for our women's retreat and you're interested in doing that, that is coming up on April 29th and 30th. Uh, it's $100 uh, and you can sign up for that and, and join. I think it's going to be a wonderful time for our ladies. We've had quite a few that have already signed up, so make sure that you jump in on that. There is limited space for that. Uh, and then uh, for those of you who, who give, remember that we've also begun giving through Venmo. And so you can give on our website, you can give via Venmo, you can give via our offering box that's out in the lobby. Um, and out at that offering box, there's also a Venmo code now that you can stop by, you can scan if you would like to give that way. Thank you for your continued generosity as we um, seek to um, declare and display the gospel and, and see churches multiplied. And then today's Family Sunday. Last Sunday of the month, we join together, we bring our kids in, we're all together. And so uh, if you're new with us you're, and it's loud today uh, and your kids are part of the loudness, that's okay. All right, we love loud kids, we love cries, we love uh, kids that kind of squirm around a little bit. That happens every now and then for us. We just bring them in here together the last Sunday of every month. Uh, and if you're visiting and you're like, wow, that was chaos with kids, come back next week, we'll, we'll ship the kids off next week, all right? And we'll have a little more peace. But thanks for joining us uh, for Family Sunday today. Kids, it is really good to have you in here with us. We love you guys. Thanks for being here and worshiping with us today. Hey, I want to bring up Risa Woods. Uh, many of you know Risa, or if you don't know Risa, you know Risa's face because Risa is, has been our director of hospitality for the last three years, I believe, um, and has led. Risa hates this, by the way. I was like, Risa, can we honor you today? And she goes, I'll hate every minute of it. I said, thank you. I appreciate you doing, saying yes. Um, Arisa has led our hospitality team uh, very faithfully for the last several years, and, and the Lord's just kind of led upon her heart to do some other things in ministry, and she's stepping out of that, and, and we are replacing her with Matt and Emily Tippin. It's taking two people to replace you, Risa, and so um, she has served us very faithfully. Risa, we have a gift for you that I'll give you in the second service, because if I give it to you right now, we won't have a gift in the second service, all right? So you don't get this yet. Yeah, two gifts. We could have done that. Yeah, that's four years. You got to do four years for two gifts. Um, but we just want to say thank you. Um, thanks for serving so faithfully. Many of you have felt welcome coming in because of her and her leadership of her team. And so, Risa, we want to pray for you. And we just want to kind of bless you as you step out of this role. And then we also want to pray for the Tippins. And then we're also going to pray for Ukraine, right, and what's going on there and our brothers and sisters in Christ there and, and the innocent that are there. And then Tyler's going to come and preach. And if you'll remember, and we brought Tyler on about a month ago. He is our director of worship ministries, and he's also a pastoral candidate for us, and we're excited to have him come and preach for us as we continue our journey through the book of Acts. Jesus, I thank you for Risa. I thank you for her joy and her faithfulness and her leadership and her kindness and her servant's heart. Father, so many of us have been blessed deeply by her, um, many of us even without realizing that she was the one that was blessing us. 
And so, Father, as her and her family step into um, new seasons of serving and, and other areas of serving, Father, I pray that you would encourage her and that you would go before her. Father, as they bring in another child into their home in, in, in the coming weeks, I pray that you would give um, ease and that you would give health and that you would be um, bless that, Father. Father, bless their family. Thank you. Um, for the woods. Thank you for John leading us in worship this morning. Thank you for Risa and her leadership over hospitality. Father, we pray for our brothers and sisters in Ukraine. We pray for the, um, those in Ukraine who are suffering, the, the innocent that are there, those who are fighting. We, we pray for your grace and your protection. Father, we pray for endurance among the believers that are there, some of which even gathered this morning for church. And so, Father, would you give strength and faith and protection Father, we long, things like this cause us to long for your return to remove evil. Father, one day, there'll be no more tears and no more pain and no more death, for you will make all things new. And so we keep praying and longing for that. Maranatha, come quickly, Lord. And then, Father, speak to our hearts today through your word. We need to hear from you. Um, encourage us and convict us. Preach a better sermon than Tyler has even prepared for us. May we hear from you and receive from you today. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Thank you, Risa. Good morning, Emmaus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. As Josh mentioned, my name's Tyler. I am one of the pastoral candidates here at the church, and it is my privilege to deliver this morning's sermon to you, which will be from Acts chapter 3. So if you have your Bible with you, uh, turn with me to the third chapter of the book of Acts. While you're turning there, I do want to express to you uh, my heartfelt gratitude. Uh, thank you, Emmaus, for the way that you have cared for and welcomed me and my family as we have transitioned and relocated here to Kansas City. So many of you have reached out to us. Many of you have invited us into your homes. Uh, many of you have provided meals and food for us. And so I just want to express our gratitude. Uh, we, we can't begin to express the extent of that gratitude, but I did want to take this opportunity to say thank you. Thank you from the bottom of our hearts for the way that you've loved us. So with that having been said, let's turn to our text for today. There is a story that I think gets to the heart of what is happening here in the third chapter of Acts. It is about uh, Pope Innocent II and Thomas Aquinas, which if you know anything about Thomas Aquinas, you know that he is a very well-known philosopher and theologian from the past. And in this story, uh, these two men are sitting together, and in front of Pope Innocent II, there is a table, and on this table there is a mound of cash that he has solicited from the church. And Pope Innocent II looks over this mound of cash there at Thomas Aquinas, who's sitting nearby, and he says to Thomas, You see now, Thomas, the church can no longer say, Silver and gold have I none. To which Thomas then replies, This is true, Holy Father, but neither can the church now say, Rise up and walk. You see, there is often a world of difference 
between human assumptions and spiritual realities. And this world of difference is presented to us here in the third chapter of Acts. Acts chapter 3 confounds some of the most basic assumptions that we have. Particularly, our assumptions about power and weakness. If you go back, if we rewind back to the second chapter of the book of Acts, we see the Holy Spirit touching down upon a small band of disciples gathered for prayer in Jerusalem. Fast forward even earlier than that, Jesus promised that this would happen. He says in chapter 1, verse 8, He says to His disciples, But you shall receive power from on high, and you will be My witnesses beginning in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. And so we see that's how the book of Acts unfolds. The disciples do receive power from on high to bear witness in the city of Jerusalem. Peter gets up in front of the crowd that is gathered there for the Feast of Pentecost, and he preaches Christ to them. And the result is that thousands are saved and baptized, and the New Testament church is born. And then last week, we saw that chapter 2 concludes by describing the life of this early church. These believers developed rhythms and practices, and it's through these rhythms and these practices that they shared a common life together in the Spirit. So this brings us to the passage we're going to look at today. Now at this point, here in Acts chapter 3, it would have been very easy for these early Christians to settle for their immediate success. It probably would have been tempting for them to become inwardly focused to plateau in their sense of mission. After all, they saw a massive amount of conversions in a single day. I mean, what could be better than that? It doesn't get any better. But Acts chapter 3 is a compelling reminder that God's mission isn't over until it's over. There are still people to be reached There are still lives to be changed. There is still good news to be shared. And this will be the case until Jesus Christ returns from heaven. Which means that the church cannot afford to live off of yesterday's successes no matter how great or how impressive those successes might be. No, the Spirit of God is calling us as the people of God to advance into the world with the Gospel of God. He is calling us here and now to look to the horizon and to pray that we would be used in this generation to spread the new creation of God in Christ far and wide. So here's what I'm laboring to impress upon you today as we look at this passage together. I want you to see that Jesus spreads God's new creation as the church displays and declares the gospel. Jesus spreads God's new creation as the church displays and declares the gospel. Friends, this is God's plan for making all things new. 
It is His program for mending all the broken, inconsolable things in our world. His new creation is indeed gaining ground wherever His people, the church, are displaying and declaring His great and glorious gospel. So let's walk through this text together. As we do, we will see two indicators that God's new creation is spreading. Okay, two indicators. Here's the first one. The first indicator is that the power of Christ is displayed through human weakness. The power of Christ is displayed through human weakness. Look with me at verses 1 through 5. God's Word tells us, Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man, lame from birth, was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. Thanks be to God for His Word to us this morning. So, notice with me a few things about how Luke is setting the scene here. Notice a few things about how this passage begins. First, I want you to notice the beggar's condition and what it meant. Verse 2 says that he had been lame from his birth. This was his default. His disability was original to him. It was not the result of some accident. It was not the result of some disease he had uh, contracted later in his life. No, this man had never known anything different. But not only that, his condition was completely debilitating. Again, verse 2, it also mentions that he had to be carried to the location where he would ask people for alms as, as they were entering the temple for prayer and for worship. And it's there that he would watch person after person after person walk by him and go into the temple to pray. You have to remember something. That in the mind of a Jewish person, the temple was emblematic for the presence of God with His people. So this man would watch from a distance as people went into the presence of God, never able to enter there himself. Socially and religiously speaking, he was banished, he was ostracized. From the presence of God. This condition of his, it made him an outsider. He was stuck on the margins of whatever was happening there at the temple. And that's really the next thing I want you to notice. Notice with me the beggar's location. He was laid daily just outside the temple gate which Luke tells us that this was the beautiful gate. That's what it was called. And this was as close to the temple 
It was as close to the presence of God as this man would ever hope to get. He would never get any closer than the beautiful gate. Now here's the thing that you need to know about this gate. It was spectacular. It was a spectacular sight to behold. It really did live up to its name. You see, it was made of pure imported bronze, and it was enormous. One ancient historian tells us that it was 50 cubits high and 40 cubits wide. So that's a height of 75 feet and a width of 60 feet. So we are talking about one of the more impressive sites in the city of Jerusalem at this time. And really, if you think about it, that's what makes this scene with the beggar so interesting. Here, you have a perfect picture of human weakness. You have a disabled beggar. And then, you have the beautiful gate, which was a, a, a monument to what man's religion and power and wealth could achieve. So you see the contrast there, right? It could not have been greater. It could not have been more stark. And then finally, notice with me Peter and John's compassion toward the beggar. Verse 1 says that they have shown up at the temple at the hour of prayer. This is 3 o'clock in the afternoon. So the temple is bustling with activity. There are people everywhere. It's noisy. It's crowded. And what do Peter and John notice in this noisy, crowded scene? They notice a beggar asking for alms. And this makes sense, doesn't it? Given that, that Peter and John had accompanied our Lord Jesus for three years during His earthly ministry. Right? They had, they had seen our Lord's compassion toward people like this a thousand times. People on the margins. People who were destitute and unwanted and cast aside and forgotten. And in His heart of hearts, our Jesus is drawn to such people. And under His glorious influence, so were Peter and John. They treat the man the same way that Jesus would. They dignify him by paying attention to him and speaking to him. And in the story, this is where things take sort of a surprising turn. Look with me at verse 6. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and his ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. So just try to imagine that for a second. 
Imagine this scene. Just a moment earlier, this man had absolutely zero chance of walking, ever. He had zero chance of ever being able to get to the temple. He could not get to God's presence, so God's presence came to him. Verse 7, it explicitly mentions that, that Peter took the man by the hand and he raised him up. Do you see what Luke is telling us there? Do you see what those words mean? This was a resurrection moment. This was a moment where this man was snatched from the jaws of death by the power of Jesus Christ. And in an instant, the man is gloriously restored to full and perfect health. And what does he do next? He leaps. He leaps up, he walks, he praises God, he goes into the temple. He can finally do those things that he had never imagined he would be able to do, and it's all because Jesus showed up in power. This is what was prophesied by Isaiah when he said, Behold, your God will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. In the presence of the risen and reigning Christ, things that were once impossible now become reality. His new creation spreads, and it completely shatters our expectations about what life can be. Yes, His power takes us by surprise. This is why everything, everyone there at the temple that day took notice of what happened to the man. All eyes are on this guy. Luke tells us that the crowded scene there at the temple is now revolving around this miracle that had just taken place. A miracle that, mind you, began with three guys who are admittedly unimpressive. Think about who these three guys are. One of them has been unable to do anything for himself his entire life except beg. That's the disabled man. And then the other two, Peter and John, they are grubby fishermen from a backwater podunk part of Israel. They're from Galilee and they don't have a dime to their name. They don't have two nickels to rub together. Friends, this is a motley crew. This is a model intersection of human weakness, if there ever was one. And yet, and yet, heaven and earth are poised to converge in their midst. What we have here in Acts chapter 3, this is a perfect recipe for power from above. And what are the primary ingredients at work here? Well, human weakness, acknowledged helplessness, profound need. When we come to a text like this, naturally, one of the first things we are inclined to ask is, how did Peter do what he did? And how can I experience that kind of spiritual power in my life. I want that. 
Don't you? Well, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, the Apostle Paul answers that. He tells us how. But the answer he gives is one that probably most of us are not going to like. To be honest with you, I don't like the answer, but I think it is the same answer that Peter would give us if we were to parachute into this scene here at the beautiful gate and ask him. In 2 Corinthians 12, 9, Paul says that God's power is perfected in our weakness. So so if you want to see God's power increase in your life, Paul says, learn how to be weak. Learn how to be weak. That's counterintuitive, friends. I don't know about you, but I, I, I have been spending my entire adult life trying to outrun my weaknesses. Right? I, I tend to view them as a nuisance, <laughs> as, as something that hinders me from doing great things for God. And I, if I had to guess... I'd say that you probably feel the same way about your weaknesses. You view them as a nuisance. You view them as a hindrance. And if that's you, if that's true of you, and if it's true of me, you need Acts chapter 3 today. So do I. This story is for anyone who has ever thought to themselves, what do I have to offer? What do I have to offer anyone? I'm not important. I'm not impressive. I'm not particularly intelligent. I'm just average. I'm just me. What can my life ever offer? What what difference could I ever make? We all have thoughts like that. We're all a little neurotic that way. We all have this tendency to allow our insecure self-talk to define us. And there's a certain irony to this, I think. Because while we're sitting here thinking, oh, my weakness, man, that's my biggest problem. My biggest problem is just, it's the weaknesses I have that I'm constantly coming up against. While we're sitting here thinking that to ourselves, the Lord is looking at us saying, no, no, your, your biggest problem isn't your weakness. Your biggest problem is your unhealthy preoccupation with your weakness. Why? Well, it's because as long as you are preoccupied with yourself, as long as you are preoccupied with your own limitations and the things that you lack and what somebody else has, right? That comparison trap that we find ourselves in. As long as you're preoccupied with those things, your focus is in the wrong place. Christians are not called to a life of navel-gazing. No, we are called to a life of mission. Our aim in life is not to sit around and think introspective things about ourselves. No, our aim is to join the Holy Spirit in spreading God's new creation by making Jesus Christ known and by knowing Him. And that begins as we look to Him in trust, realizing That his power is perfected in us when we are at our weakest. So let me remind you of something today. Your weakness is not a liability. 
It's not. Your weakness is not a liability. No, far from it. Your weakness is your greatest asset for mission because it is the very point at which God wants to display his power through you. What does this mean? Well, it means that we don't need to cover up our weaknesses. We don't need to overcompensate for our weaknesses by by putting on a front of false confidence. No, we don't need to do any such thing. Remember, Peter didn't. Peter didn't do that. He came right out and owned it. Man, you're looking for silver and gold? I'm flat broke. But let me tell you what I do have. There's this man from Nazareth who loved me like no one else ever has. And he's given me something that I would like to give to you. You guys, it it takes real spiritual power to be able to say something like that. But you don't receive that kind of power without knowing what it means to trust Jesus Christ with your weaknesses. He doesn't need you to be impressive. He's not asking you to be a superhero. He's not waiting for you to become the smartest and most successful person in the room before he can use you for his mission. No, no, that's not it at all. Instead, he wants to magnify his power through us just as we are, just as he finds us here in this moment. So trust him, trust him with your weakness. That's the first indicator that the power of Christ is displayed through human weakness. Here's the second. It's that the person of Christ is declared to call sinners to repentance. The person of Christ is called, is declared to call sinners to repentance. Look with me at verse 11. Let's go back to the text. It says, while he clung to Peter and John, all the people utterly astounded ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. Okay, so something's clear here. Peter has no interest in being the center of attention. He will not take credit for this miracle because the credit, he knows, is not his to take. Instead, he deflects all attention away from himself. And he does this for one reason. He wants to make Jesus known. He wants this moment here at Solomon's portico to be all about Jesus. And so he tells the people that Jesus of Nazareth, the one that they crucified, he is the chosen servant and the son of Israel's God. And Peter declares to him that he declares to them that this Jesus was raised up by God. See, you remember that resurrection moment that happened back in verse 7 in earlier in the chapter, where, where Peter raised up the beggar. 
That resurrection moment was a reverberation through space and time of the resurrection moment. When Jesus, our King, emerged triumphantly from the grave, the beggar was able to get up and walk away from his place at the beautiful gate because Jesus was able to get up and walk away from the tomb. And this, says Peter, is incontrovertible proof that it was God's plan to glorify Jesus. To honor Him as the once crucified, now risen Lord. And Peter contrasts this with the fact that the people had dishonored Jesus. They had denied God's chosen servant. They had rejected His Son. And instead of receiving him and believing on his name, the people had him delivered over to be crucified on a Roman cross. Remember with me what happened in the gospel accounts. We're told that Pontius Pilate, wanting to appease an angry mob, offered to have the criminal Barabbas executed instead of Jesus. Barabbas, Peter reminds us, was a murderer. More specifically, he was a bloodthirsty insurrectionist. Jesus, on the other hand, was God's holy and righteous one. He was perfectly innocent. The Bible tells us that he was without sin. There was no moral defect in him. And even though this was perfectly obvious to anyone with half a brain, the people still wanted Jesus to die instead of Barabbas. You guys, that's how depraved humanity can be. Given the choice between the guilty Barabbas and the innocent Jesus, we will choose Barabbas every time. It's in our nature to do this. Left to ourselves, we love the darkness And we hate the light. We just can't help ourselves. And so Peter rightly and justly lays the death of Jesus at the feet of sinful humanity. And he does this with a statement of just astonishing irony. I mean, the irony here will stop you dead in your tracks. He says, you killed the author of life. Like the one in whom all things were created, the source of everything that is, you killed him. He was murdered at your request. His blood is on your hands. You wanted this, people. And Peter reminds them in verse 15, he says, to this we were witnesses. Like we saw the entire thing. We were there. We know how it went down. And God has placed us here and now here in Solomon's portico. To tell the story of what happened to Jesus. But Peter isn't interesting and he isn't interested in just recounting the facts of the story. He wants the people gathered there to know the meaning of the story. Why was Jesus crucified? What was the the meaning and the purpose of this all important event? This event that, that hangs all of history together. Why did it happen? Peter tells them in verse 17, read with me. He says, and now brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance. 
as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. So Peter says something here that I think is really interesting. He says that on one level, well, it was the people's ignorance and the ignorance of their rulers that killed Jesus. But on a deeper level, on a a much more fundamental level, this was God's doing. This was God's doing. In the death of Jesus, God... Just as an example, Isaiah 53, chapter 10, says that it was the will of God to crush Jesus on the cross. God has put Jesus to grief and to affliction. This means that it was God's plan all along that the bad news about what sinners did to Jesus would be good news for those very same sinners. And that's where Peter's sermon culminates. He calls the people to respond. Verse 19. He says, Repent therefore and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that He may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. So the people were ignorant about Jesus. That is clear. And what is the proper solution to their ignorance? Peter tells them it's repentance. He says, repent, because here's the thing. The people's ignorance was not a, it was a willful ignorance. It was not an honest ignorance where they genuinely could not have known the identity of Jesus. No, this was the sort of ignorance where the people had, had stuffed their fingers in their ears and refused to listen. Remember, Peter's talking to Israelites. They had the promise. They had the covenant. They had the law and the prophets. They had the traditions that had been passed down to them through the generations. The God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob had been talking to them about Jesus since the very beginning. And because of this, they didn't need more information. Now, more information would not do the trick. What they really needed was to be transformed by what they already knew. You see, more information will not magically fix people who are hell-bent on staying ignorant. No, what sinners like us most need is to be changed. We need to be transformed by Jesus at the deepest level of who we are. We need to behold the person and the power of Jesus Christ in the gospel long enough for God to renovate us in the interiority of our being. So this is why Peter calls the people to repent. But that call is not only for Peter's audience there at Solomon's portico. It is for us today. And this is why the Spirit is here in this place moving among us to solicit our repentance. We need to repent. 
We need to be changed by God in our hearts and our minds. He wants us to respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ in a volitional way by turning away from our sin and our darkness so that we can turn toward Jesus and his marvelous light. And Peter says that when we do this, when we repent of our sins, it is accompanied by three blessings. Three blessings, because you see, repentance is a gift. It is granted to us only by the sovereign mercy of God. And and, and every gift that God gives is a conduit of blessing upon blessing. So that when we repent, we aren't losing something. We aren't forfeiting something. We are not giving something up. No, we are gaining every spiritual blessing that is for us in Christ Jesus that is stored up in the heavenly places that God wants to pour out into our hearts, our lives. So let's, let's briefly look at these three blessings that Peter mentions that accompany repentance. The first blessing is cleansing from sin. This involves our standing before God. You remember in verse 19, Peter says, repent so that your sins may be blotted out so that your sins will be wiped away. Why do we need this? Well, our sin separates us from God. It makes us displeasing and unclean in his holy sight. But the gospel tells us that when we turn to the Lord in faith and repentance, he wipes our sins away. He cleanses us. He removes every transgression, every iniquity. He removes it all as far as the east is from the west. That's what Psalm 103 tells us. And why does God do this? Why does he remove our sin? Why does he cleanse us? Well, that leads right into the second blessing that Peter mentions. It's what he calls times of refreshing. I love that phrase. Don't you? Times of refreshing. This involves our experience of God. God takes our sins away because he wants us to experience the fullness of all that is for us in Jesus Christ. This world, friends, has a way of beating us down. It has, the, it has its way of, of sucking the life right out of us until we are exhausted and depleted. But what does God do for us in Christ? He refreshes us. He relieves us of the burdens that deplete us. He brings times of refreshing. That's what Jesus came to do for you and for me. He has come to pour out his living water upon the parched ground of our lives. And then the third blessing that Peter mentions is the hope of future restoration. This involves our destiny with God. In verse 20, Peter says, God will send the Christ who is appointed for you. So he will send. This is future tense. God will send the Christ who is appointed. Until the right time, however, Jesus must remain in heaven. But when that time comes, when the clock strikes on that hour, He will come again. He will 
return to us. His glory will be revealed from heaven. And when this happens, when he does this, when he appears, those who have repented will not need to shrink back at his coming. We will not be subjected to the terrors of judgment. No, through repentance, we are able to escape from the wrath that is to come. This is our confidence. This is our hope for today that we will enjoy the bright future that awaits all who are in Christ Jesus. So you see, when we repent, we are turning away from the lies of this world so that in God's character to keep his promise. And Jesus Christ is that promise. Peter traces this all the way back to Moses and Abraham and Samuel to show how the coming of Christ has been in the works since the beginning. Peter shows the people how Jesus is at the center of Israel's history, even if those people there before him refused to acknowledge it. Let's look at verse 22 through the end of the chapter. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. So what's Peter saying there? What's he, what's he striking at? Peter is basically saying that all those years ago, Moses and Samuel proclaimed these days. These days that we are now in the days of the spread of God's new creation. God's new creation was at the heart of the covenant that he made with Abraham, our father. So that all of it, all that, that God had been promising through the centuries was fulfilled when he raised up his servant, Jesus. Everything, literally everything, all peoples, places, times, and events, everything is summed up in the resurrection moment of Jesus. And maybe that's just what you need to hear today. Maybe you need to receive this by faith. That the resurrection moment of Jesus can sum up your life. It can define everything about who you are. So that you can abandon your insecure self-talk and embrace the resurrection moment of Jesus. Maybe you're sitting here with Acts chapter 3 in front of you and, 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 and you're in awe of the boldness and the power that was demonstrated through Peter there at the beautiful gate. And you're, you're sitting here thinking to yourself, I wish, I wish I could have that. I wish I had that boldness. I wish I had that power, but I'm tired. I'm timid. I'm absolutely terrified of what it would mean to step out with that kind of boldness. Yes, I want to be on mission. 
I want so badly to be on mission, but to be honest, I don't even know where to start. I don't even think I have what it takes to get started. If you're thinking that, let me tell you, you don't. You really don't have what it takes. None of us do. None of us are sitting here thinking to ourselves, man, I'm crushing this mission thing. I'm doing awesome. I know I'm not thinking that. And maybe, just maybe, that's the point. I began the sermon by giving you sort of a big idea. It was a sentence that basically summarized what I'm going to preach about. And maybe you wrote down that sentence. Maybe you didn't. It doesn't matter. But what I want to say about that is that I put that sentence a particular way for the particular reason we are talking about here. Here's what the sentence did not say. It didn't say that the church spreads God's new creation by displaying and declaring the gospel. I didn't put it that way because in and of ourselves, we don't have the ability to make the new creation spread. I would be misleading you if I had put it that way. So I put it another way. I said that Jesus spreads God's new creation as the church displays and declares the gospel. It's not us. It's Jesus. It's all Jesus. Do we have a part to play? Of course we do. But he is the one whose name is power. He is the one whose resurrection changes everything. He is the one who grants repentance to cold-hearted sinners from beginning to end. It's all Jesus. There is no other way for the new creation to spread but in and through him. And so as I conclude today, let me leave you with just this simple pastoral charge. Come to Jesus in weakness so that he can fill you with power. Come to Jesus with your weakness so that he can fill you with his power. Friends, that's all I have to offer. (laughs) I don't have any evangelistic hacks. I don't have any how-tos. I don't have any four steps to becoming more missional. No, all I have to say to you is come to Jesus. Bring Him your fear. Bring Him your weakness. Bring Him your empty pocketbook. Bring Him your exhausted, depleted heart. Empty it all out before His throne of grace so that He can fill you to overflowing with His power. Rest in His merciful embrace so that His resurrection moment can reverberate in your life today. The only way that you and I will ever be able to go out into this world and make a difference is by coming to Jesus with the empty hands of faith. So if you're in Christ, if you're a Christian, we want to offer you an opportunity to do just that. Here at Emmaus each week, we take communion. As we prepare to come to the Lord's table, I think it's fitting that we read the words of institution spoken by our Lord in Luke chapter 22, verses 19 and 20. We say, and he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. 
do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So through the message of his crucifixion and his resurrection, Jesus has provided a meal. He has set the table for our nourishment. The message is the meaning of the meal. So that if you have not believed that message, if you are not a Christian, if you are not walking by faith in Jesus Christ, we want to as kindly and as respectfully as we can ask you to refrain from coming to the table. Instead, we want to invite you, nay, we want to implore you and beg you to believe in Jesus. Believe that he died on the cross for your sins. Believe that he is raised up so that he can offer you new life today. If you're ready to take that step toward him, find someone to talk to. Find someone nearby or after the service, you can come find me. I'll be here in the front. Pastor Josh as well. We would love to talk to you about what that means. For those of us who have believed, who are following Jesus, we want to invite you to receive the bread and the cup today. We'll start here in the front of the room. And then you could come down the side, the side aisle. You can come around front, take the elements. But as you come, I want you to know that this is the resurrection moment that you need. This is the resurrection moment that you need. The power and presence of Jesus await so that weak, exhausted people like you and me can come by faith and receive all that we need at the table. Because it's here that he wants to raise us up and strengthen us for the mission that is at hand. So would you pray with me and then would you come? Lord, we come to you recognizing that we are weak and you are powerful. We are limited, but you are limitless. And Lord, as we've heard your word today, begin to stir in us a desire to trust in you and to trust in you alone. To bring every weakness we have to your throne of grace and entrust ourselves to you fully so that as we walk out of this place today, we can walk out dependent and reliant upon your power because it is your power alone that makes the new creation spread. It is your power alone that advances your mission. And so we're coming to you. We're coming with the empty hands of faith. And we ask, Lord, would you bless us. We need spiritual blessings that are for us in Christ Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Come to the table now. Thank you for listening to audio from Amaze KC, located in Kansas City. For more information about Amaze KC, please visit us online at www.amazekc.com.